0: Uh, My name's Drew, I'm the pastor here at Hope Community Church in Columbia Heights. I'm glad you're here, especially if you're new or just checking us out. Thanks for coming, we're thrilled that you can be here with us um, uh, this week. I don't remember pushing a shopping cart in front of the screen, but I'll do my best. I'm glad of all the things I've ever done. Uh, That's what Natty remembers. Also, Austin, I saw the mustache got shaved off. Is that so you didn't match? Too, too, Too many mustaches in the internship? All right. I thought so. I was feeling that, so I'm glad you balanced it out for us. <laughs> I love it. I I uh I moved Kelly and I moved here to, over 12 years ago to do the same thing. So, 12, 11 years ago, I got to stand on the stage at Hope at our downtown location and share that I was an intern and um, man, one of the best decisions we probably ever made. So, thankful for that. Thankful for you guys that you're doing that. Uh, to potlucks so though, it's potluck day and uh Oh, it's so hard to narrow down. I'd say a few, I was thinking of some of my favorite potlucks. Now, part of like how I invite people to my potluck, so today, if you get to come to our house for the potluck, uh, we love all of you, but it might be because I know you bring good things to potlucks, is Phil in here? Phil brings this amazing sweet potato. There's like brown, a lot of brown sugar, I think is what makes it good. (laughs) And, oh, it's one of my favorites, and uh, we were in a small group together. We'd have this Friendsgiving, and the whole reason we had Friendsgiving is so that Phil would bring that tasty sweet potato. What was it called? I don't know what it it's called. Sweet potato sugar thing? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Had bourbon in it? Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> no one ever told me that. Uh, I'm sure there's something about even thinking about that. I'm mouth-watering, right? I get like this appetite. My stomach might even grumble a little bit. Uh, there's something sweet about getting together. Today we're going to look uh, as we continue our series at this idea of this having this appetite for something. And what do we do with an appetite? And I think if I'm hungry for tacos, like we're having today at our house, to, and watching the Vikings game, then often I think, oh, I could maybe make some tacos. But also we know that that doesn't mean that I should just always be eating tacos or I should eat tons of tacos. Right? There's things that might hurt me or make me. Sick. There's like places for that, and the text today that we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians uses that same language, and that's kind of the way we're going to think about today the next stop on our, in our series that we're doing here. We have a series that we're doing called Made for God. We're looking at identity and gender and sex, and what does that look like? What is the gospel? How does the gospel speak to that? We're seeing it as really as one series that kind of covers almost one giant sermon together. And so we're looking at building a foundation, which we've been doing, um, as we looked at things like our identity and God's lovely authority and he, the great creation that he made, that we have a good creator who created really good things and created us to bear his image. But then things go wrong and things get broken as we turn away from him and run to different things. We see this right away, the story of Adam and Eve as they turn away from God uh, and it brings death and sin and brokenness. And we felt that brokenness we even spent the whole week just thinking through that and processing what what does it mean to live in a broken world where uh, sex and sexuality all those things are broken there's something off with them that we're born into a place where sin exists and so so it's not the the way that God uh, intended for it to be initially and so what does that look like And, and is there hope in that is there forgiveness yes and that how do we see good news in all things? And so last week we looked at what, it would, what uh, dating looked like and uh, marriage. And um, this week we're going to continue this discussion as we go uh, and, and continue to think about what does it look like to be made for God? What does it look like to think uh, with the gospel as our, as our lenses on our glasses as we look at the world um, at that? So also just a reminder, there are resources um, online online. Books, I know some of you have already said you've grabbed a book and started reading one of the books on our list of resources or listened to a different podcast or, or read some articles. So just continue. Uh, we want you to continue to be thinking and growing in this area. Um, I, I won't be able to cover much, right, on a Sunday morning, but want to give you a clue and, and give us thinking towards what does the gospel and good news look like. The real quick recap, uh, we did start with God and his good creation, that he created good things, created people in his image to bear his image. He created the male and female and he brought them together in marriage and he said, I want you to, to multiply, I want you to grow, I want life to come from this uh, exclusive relationship that I've given you uh, as this great symbol of this relationship of God and his people and that life comes from it. But it, something got broken, right? A serpent comes, lies begin to be believed. The salesman for sin, as uh, Satan, um, is causes brokenness to come into the world as Adam and Eve turn away from God and we see things broken like I just said and so out of that comes this shame and guilt comes brokenness comes all that comes from uh, sex and sexuality our identities when they're not our hope isn't in Jesus when we haven't placed our hope there all that come from that and so we feel that thankfully again we hear Jesus the the good news that Jesus has come to put an end to that to crush the head of the snake that there's hope Last week we started looking uh, more specifically into certain relationships or certain uh, ways that we see ourselves uh, participating in this, uh, in our life, and one of the things we looked at was this idea that we have this great narrative that we're a part of, this story that we're a part of, of a God who creates things and a God who will come one day and make things right, and that we're all part of that story together and he's created us, that he gives us our identity. And so we looked at singleness and married um, relationships last week, we were looking at if, they're, if they are a curse or if they give you some superpower or make you a better, a higher class Christian. Um, and we decided no, as we looked at scripture. We realized that those are actually gifts in different ways, but gifts to the church and to the communities around us and really a gift from God in the gospel. One of the quotes that's really been landing with me all week is uh, from this book, Seven Myths, Myths About Singleness. I'd encourage you to read any, if you're married or single or anyone uh, It's really encouraging. But he says, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, we look at a marriage and we see two people come together uh, and, and grow together, even maybe create life as they have children, as a picture, a shape of what the gospel looks like, singleness shows us its sufficiency. In singleness, it shows us that Jesus is enough. And so we need each other in the church and we can lean into each other as we learn those things. So as we continue here, well, this week we're talking about lust, masturbation, and fornication—all words that just roll off the tongue. I'm sure this week were said many times in conversations. I, this week someone asked me, "What are you talking? Is this the fornication week?" And they said the only place I ever, ever, ever hear that word <laughs> is in church, and they were trying to make up dad jokes and they to make it feel less uh, awkward, I think. And he said, "Are we talking about fivenication this week?" And I said, "That's a terrible." joke and I won't use it. And I just did though. Sorry, I shouldn't have used it. Um, and we're going to look at uh, this, but, but um, I think historically maybe, if, or maybe not you haven't experienced, but I know in my experience with this, this is a topic that uh, for many years when I went to like a men's Bible study, um, or even if I gathered like high school students together when I was doing youth ministry, this is a topic that comes up often and often uh, very quickly turns into an opportunity to, to like swap uh, tips on how to not do it, to just stop, to stop it, to not do it. And even I know in in my own story um, in dealing with these, uh, really often I would just meet with people. I needed them to say, just stop doing it. I'd say, okay, I'll try to stop doing it. And it really, for me, turned into something that was very hidden and very quickly was hidden because I was sick of telling people it was still part of my life. Um, And so I want to look at today, not uh, as, as much like what is this or some tips on how to stop doing it, um, uh, but really think about, like, why do we do this, and what is really, what's really the answer t- to battling these things in our lives, and what do they look like? So that's our hope. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, this is really the passage that the name of our series comes from, uh, and so if you have a Bible or if you just want to follow along, we'll have all the passages up on the screen. We're in 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to read the, the whole passage first. Uh, I'll just read it to us, and then we're going to take some time to kind of, Walk through it and answer a couple big questions. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ's body and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. There's a lot of things in there. There's a few things I'd like us to do today. I'd like us to think about what is sexual immorality maybe how it affects us. I think we are affected by, and you, you maybe are very aware of this and, and thinking, yeah, 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 but I, I, I don't know what to do with it. How does the gospel apply to it? That's our hope. We're gonna look at how do we flee from it. The passage uses the word flee. How do we flee from it? And how does Jesus Jesus respond to people uh, who are lustful, who who are dealing with sexual sin, who have even been hurt by it? And so I think uh, that, that will also help us understand here at the end. I'm excited to even just take a moment to be ministered to by Jesus and how he responds to it. Well, first, let's get into this. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I'll not be mastered by it. You say food for the stomach and stomach for food, God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality for the Lord and the Lord for the body. We've talked about this a little bit another week and actually later, it, it's similar, right? Flee from sexual immorality. He's saying, you weren't made for this, sexual immorality, whatever this is, uh, it, but it we, we're doing this and it's really connected to our bodies, right? And we, our bodies weren't made for this. And so what do we mean by sexual immorality? Because that, There could be a whole range of ways we interpret that or think about that. There's some ways that have really been helpful uh, in reading uh, a book and and some resources from uh, Preston Sprinkle and also some others. Uh, They use this, which I think a lot of people use, kind of this um, uh, is the way you kind of walk towards sexual immorality. This has really helped me think about it. So these are kind of the steps that happen, right? So you're a person and you first feel an attraction to other people or a type of people or a certain gender of people. And so you find that those people attractive, uh, those people draw your affections, and usually they're kind of a specific thing, right? Typically people are uh, attracted. Now some people feel like they're attracted to uh, multiple genders or all different kinds of people, but you know sometimes this happens when people are talking and like, what's your type? So we find ourselves attracted to a person. Noticing, we would hope, right, the beauty that's in an image bearer of God. You can notice that beauty that that in that person created in God's image, but because of sin uh there can be something felt that can kind of draw us to a next step that that can draw us into what we'd say the next thing is so the first we find attraction in a person and then we could move towards temptation. This is where we feel drawn in to being drawn uh being being kind of tempted, obviously that's the word, right? Like we even see Satan doing in the garden in the story with Adam and Eve, being tempted to say, hey, this other thing, this move towards this thing, be drawn to this thing. A definition we see is being drawn towards something unwise or wrong is one of the definitions in the Bible, in the, Bible, in the dictionary. <laughs> dictionary is not the Bible. Um, but being drawn to something maybe unwise or wrong, something that we weren't made for, is maybe how we'd say it in the church. Jesus was tempted by Satan. We see this in the story after he's baptized, he goes in the wilderness. And when he's exhausted and hasn't eaten, Satan comes to him and says, I want you to worship me. I want you to do anything but the mission God's given you. And it says Jesus is tempted, right? He says, come do this unwise thing, this thing you were not made for. We still don't see this as sin. This isn't Sexual immorality, we see this as this is really life, right? We feel attracted to something, we feel a temptation to be drawn towards it, to be moved into the next uh, place, which we would call lust. This moves us from temptation into could be fantasy, putting our hope in sexual desires, that putting our hope in a person or a thing that we think this would sexually fulfill us and maybe ultimately fulfill us. Thinking that sex or, or a sexual act with this person or thing would fully satisfy us. Going from being attracted to tempted to move towards an unwise thing to now starting to actually think and feel and desire that thing. This sometimes is described as, as a, a lack of love, but but a desire to use something to fulfill yourself. Uh, that helps me a little bit to think about what's How does that change? And I think sometimes it changes where I want to use this thing to satisfy something in me, to give me something. Or changes from love to lust. Not necessarily that those can't happen at the same time. This can look like sexual thoughts, fantasies, obsessing over something. Sometimes this this changes because it changes our plans, right? It can change your plans for the day as you lust, as you desire something. How... how, uh, how you act towards someone as we move into behaviors. And then finally, uh, we see sexual morality as it moves to lust and desire. We see this becoming a sin, and then lust moves to a behavior or an action. So we we find an attraction towards something. We feel drawn, tempted to make that thing our hope, our fulfillment. We have sexual desire towards it, and then we actually can act on that. This is the action step. This could happen through things like masturbation or actual intercourse or sexual contact with someone. Many times this directs our resources. Sometimes the action isn't so much actually interaction with a person, but it's changing how you use the things God has given you, like money or time or relationships. Um, Someone once told me that you, he said, I feel like I decide if I'm gonna give in to my temptation within about 20 seconds of When I have it, I have to kind of decide right away, am I going to keep moving towards this or not? He said, because lust often plans my day decides what i 'm going to do. I thought that was really helpful because I, I I felt that Where I started having that thought, I started thinking about it, and then all of a sudden it changes what I want to look at or how I change my afternoon or what I move towards, even if it 's just in my thoughts. Now we see this play out culturally in many ways, right We live in a culture that can kind of be described sometimes as like hypersexual, that lots of things are connected to this, that this can be our fulfillment, this can be our, our identity, that this is the ultimate um, thing. We can look, as, as we see in First Corinthians, that our bodies are just things that have an appetite. They just have a, a desire, and we should be able to satisfy that appetite, and it's just an appetite. It's just, I just need, like, I need to eat food. I just need to fulfill a sexual desire with a person or, or watching something or just with myself, it's just a normal thing with the body. saying your bodies weren't made for that. They're not, bodies aren't just things even in the passage we can write that it's as if they kind of just throw them away. That's because culturally at that time, they were thinking that the soul and the body were disconnected. The bodies weren't really worth anything. If anything, bodies were sort of evil. Like, this is the bad part. And so just kind of use it. Maybe it'll help you feel good. And then later, your soul is the, is the good thing. Like, similar to how we think now, right? Look within yourself. W- what You need to like nurse your own Uh, like inner self, it's all for you. And then, and and this body is just like a kind of vessel to hold that thing. And we don't see them connected. And we see in scripture, bodies being really important. Um, And so a few ways we see this play out, which probably aren't surprising, uh, one in pornography in our culture is enormous, right? I looked at lots of studies and they all had very different uh, range of the use of pornography. Um, depending on the year when the study came out, it went from about 60% of men to 99% of men. Uh, and one study said possibly 100%, which is wild to hear in study that they would, uh, depending on who they interviewed or how many people. And in females, that number has gone up over time as well. Some studies recently saying 60% of women participate in pornography. And that's, these are um, people like consistently in their life. Pornography being an opportunity to to uh, watch or look at other people engaging in sex or just people, um, anyway, really, you can fulfill that lust and move it into an action. Uh, pornography, uh, these are some of the, the uh, words that were shared as I've asked uh, some of you and people within, over time, just said, hey, what's drawing you into it? I think this is really helpful. I was in a group uh, my first years. actually, I was an intern. I got to be part of something back then we called redemption groups. What do they call that now? renovation groups, still an R, renovation groups here at Hope, which is one of my favorite things I did. For six weeks, we got to just sit uh, together every week and think about what does it look like to fight sin together. And I remember sitting in a circle with a a group of guys the first night and we all just shared, like, why did we come to this? What sin are we fighting? And all of the guys, 100% of them said, this was one of the things that we're really battling. And everybody had a different reason for why. We were trying to help each other think, like, what what makes you move towards pornography? What do you think it's going to do? And and these are some of them uh, and some extra ones. But I remember thinking, wow, people have different reasons, but we all use the same thing for that. Whether it's a stress reliever, it makes me feel powerful or wanted. Uh, Someone said it's just education. I'm just trying to learn how sex works. Not the place to learn how sex works. It's not, not real. Just convenience. They said it's just an easy way when I'm feeling lustful and I'm feeling those desires. It's just an easy way to quickly relieve that. Uh, someone shared a fear of rejection as I think with, if it was a real woman, I would feel, I'm worried I'd be rejected. So this is a way I feel like I can't be rejected. A relief of the tension of lust. I just can't, it's overwhelming. I just need to relieve it. And someone, I remember saying, I just want to, so I do it. We should be able to just do it if we want to. Oh, that's like first Corinthians six, right? We see this, uh, this desire to go towards, and then we also see this culturally as just um, an enormous industry. Pornography is, uh, is over a billion-dollar industry. It, it's one of the leading uh, uh, industries in developing technology uh, because then they can get better technology in, into people's hands. Often it's the first place that children experience uh, uh, sexual education. we use quotes on that, or experience sex. It's a thing that uses women and men, but a lot of women as a commodity. Pornography is a thing that we can be used. We, we use people and discard them. It, it's tied very closely to human trafficking, stealing the lives of many women to sell sex. And it's not real, right? It's an illusion of intimacy, of power, of comfort, of relief. It makes you believe that you were made for sex. It really, it really, and so I just in my own experience with this, I remember thinking this This shaped how I viewed myself and really the world around me. It, it made me look at women around me often as objects that could be used. It's a lot of us taking it, creates a consumerism within sex. It said just in the last year, there was 45 million cases of child pornography. And that number's increased. Isn't that heartbreaking? So, so we, we, know, we know this, right? I think... It probably isn't a surprise. This is a big deal around us. But not just that, there's also um, what someone called, this is the least s- sexy way to say, <laughs> non-marriage sexual interaction <laughs> amongst people. Um, I used that phrase when someone said, it was asking me like, trying to s- explain this, and I said, oh, you mean like non-marriage sexual interaction? And he was like, oh, well, that, doesn't, that doesn't help me want to do stuff. I was like, good, use that phrase then with your girlfriend, maybe, maybe ask her for that and then she won't want to. Uh, they say about 70 to 8, 90% of people are engaged and this would be like premarital sex or just even kind of any um, interaction. Uh, and Some of the reasons for this that have come about are combat, people want to know if they're compatible before marriage, or are we going to be able to have a, have a good sex life Uh, that it feels good, that it relieves stress again, that we're looking for intimacy, and this brings intimacy. Uh, We've heard a lot of couples say, I've been dating a long time, and it kind of eventually leads to this, which should naturally lead to this, right? If you've been dating, you're moving towards marriage, there'd be a point where you're like, whoa, physical intimacy is something we are moving towards, and that's usually when we encourage you to consider getting married. You should get married then. That's going to be part of being married. It seemed very normal or even encouraged if you look around the culture, you might even think it's strange that you aren't engaging in that. And I think this last one, mutual consumerism, uh, is a way of saying that both people are ultimately using one another to feel something. And it might not be the same thing. Um, sometimes we sit down with couples in pre and you say, what, what do you think sex will bring to your marriage? And one will say, well, it'll feel really good. And one will say, it'll make me feel really close to him. Usually that's the way it goes. So they actually using it for something, using one another for something rather than uh, sex being something that actually is an opportunity to serve one another. But if, you, but if you're thinking of sex as a thing that is the ultimate, that will define you, will bring about satisfaction, then it makes sense that these, you would use another person ultimately get that. The, the one uh, article I read was really helpful. They said maybe the best way to actually know what people are feeling about, uh, about these things isn't necessarily a survey, because people don't answer, but they actually gather data on Google searches, which I think is interesting. Uh, and these are some of the uh, top Google searches kind of in this category. My partner doesn't want sex. Open marriage. Is violent sex okay is, is a growing search. Casual sex connections, I'd be like a, looking for maybe an app or a place just to meet casually. Guilt, shame after sex has grown. Was I sexually assaulted? How do I make myself more attractive? How do I attract someone else? It's, that's a consumer mindset in sexuality um, that I have to make myself so people would want to, you know, want that. How do I get someone in bed? How do I make sex feel special? How do I hide an affair? Is it okay to not have sex? Just that phrase, think of that. Is it okay that I'm not? culturally, these are things people are thinking about. We're all experiencing, right? That's around us. What does it look like? Uh, C.S. Lewis has uh, a quote, I think, that helps us think culturally how big a deal this is. He said, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act. That is to watch a girl undress on stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply brining a covered plate onto the stage or bringing, and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see it. Just before the lights went, went out, that it contained a mutton chop and a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? Think about this when we think about 1 Corinthians 6. Yeah, if we gathered together and then I I opened a crock pot, everyone was like, ooh, mutton chop, right? you go like, what is going on with these people? You have an obsession with food that is not healthy, that is not okay. You have a, a lust for food that is unhealthy, we see this often, right? This is how we're advertised to. We get a peek and we know it draws us in. I think it's telling us something. I think uh, sex, uh, pornography, right? These, this, the reason we're feeling this is because it's promising us something. And this week I actually was uh, in an airport. I was uh, in Colorado for a few days at a church planning conference and I was in the airport and I saw an ad for Marriott and they had this phrase, it felt very strong. Marriott has this new campaign called The Power of Travel, and this is what it said. Travel is an antidote to biases and narrow minds. In its new global Power of Travel campaign, Marriott Bonvoy is calling on the world to embrace the transformative power of travel as a vital pathway to growth, healing, and unity. It goes on, actually, in the actual commercial, it says, do you want to be whole again? Marriott?" And I'm like, it's that easy. (laughs) Okay. I went right out and I got a Marriott credit card and I'm like, those points are getting me to heaven. I can't wait. I think this phrase though, growth, healing, and unity, right? That's what we're looking for and I think that is the temptation that we have. That's what what, um, this draws us to. That's the call that we're getting is this will bring growth to you. This will bring, bring unity to us. This will bring healing to me. And it, and it doesn't, but we, over and over, we're hearing that, right? And it's drawing us to that next step of like, put your worship, right? Lust in a, is really a form of worship, our hopefulness in it. And so then we answer the next question. How do we flee from it? Well, I love how Paul does this. And he does this all the time in scripture. And this is not the first step I take. My first step is, okay, I gotta like get the right filters and I have to like have the right accountability. I have to just stop it. Stop doing this, Drew, stop doing this and he reminds us of how our hearts are changed. Those things are really helpful. I have those things. I have people who help me. I have people I can confess to, and I have things set up so that I'm not finding myself peeking at the crock pot, right? But, I, but, I, but it has to start somewhere, and he goes right to it. He says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now listen to what he says. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. He, he reminds us of the gospel. He says, hey, don't do this. Here's some ways to not to flee sexual immorality. He says, that's not who you are. He tells us who we are. How cool is that? The, he says, in the gospel, you have been raised to new life. Your body wasn't created for you. For God in his glory, it was created. You're so important. Your body is so important to God that he sent Jesus who died and rose from the dead. His deathly body brings life. And you too have a deathly body that life will come to in Christ. So he says, run from it. It cuts deep. It it hurts. It kills us. But again, reminds us, it's, you were bought with a price. You aren't, you, aren't, you aren't that person because of Christ's death and resurrection. You're not your own. You were made for God. How do we flee from sexual sin? We remember the gospel. We believe. We believe and know that Christ is real, that he died and he rose, and then he's, he's brought our, our bodies to life. Your, your identity is not from you. It is not from your sexuality, it is not from who you're with, it is from God. It's from our good creator. That we have an appetite and the appetite is satisfied in Christ, that your bodies are sacred. And we hear then as he goes on, are filled with the spirit. In verse 16, you do not know that he unites himself with a prostitute is with her in body. Why can he say that? Because we heard way back in Genesis The two will become one flesh. When you unite yourself that way with someone, you're united in flesh. There's something deeper that happens there. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. There's a connection that's made in that way uh, that the Holy Spirit enters in and there's unity. We really want unity. This is where unity comes from. It's an appetite that we think is satisfied and we might throw ourselves at others or into this physical act, this spiritual act, this emotional act, hoping it will bring, what, growth and unity, and it doesn't, but Christ does. We see this happen in dating relationships. Uh, if you, maybe you've had a friend have this happen where two people are dating, and you're like, why are they dating? Like, all they do is fight, and your friend just tells you how terrible it is, but they're still together, and often it's because, right, because they're sleeping together. And so that physical intimacy like is hold, barely holding that relationship together. And then as, as, as emotional and relational and spiritual intimacy is not growing, eventually it kind of falls apart, right? When physical intimacy falls apart. So how, how does this look? This, is, this has helped me a lot. So how do we do this? So if, if the way to fight this, to battle this, is to remember the gospel, remember who Christ is and what he's done, and allow the Spirit of God to empower us to do this, then I think there's a kind of image that helps me think about this. So it starts with Jesus, right? This is where we land. This is where we find ourselves. This is who you are, is in Christ. This is where life comes from, satisfaction comes from, and these come from. Control, Jesus is in control. When I'm feeling like things are out of control, what I look to, Jesus. When I want to be comfortable when I, when I don't want to feel pain, when, when things hurt, I can look to Jesus, knowing he understands that, and then one day he'll make things right. When I, when I worry I need power, I, I, things feel out of control, they feel chaotic, who, who has the authority here? I don't need to, to, to run to that, Jesus is. I can remember he's on his throne, and security, right, Jesus fulfills security in my life. Do I feel unsafe, unsettled, what's next? I know Jesus knows and is there. But instead, we often find ourselves running away from Jesus, towards other things, right? With this little dotted line here. And we use different things to run to those. So for me, I might think, man, I just want to be comfortable. I want to escape. I want to feel good. So maybe food draws me there, maybe a nap. And so I just think, I just need a nap and everything will be okay. <laughs> Sometimes a nap helps, but everything will just be fine. I'll be satisfied deeper within my soul. Maybe alcohol, maybe sex, maybe just an orgasm somehow will ultimately comfort me, fulfill me forever. We're ultimately turning our worship, right, towards something else. If we get really down to it, if you ask the question like, why did I do that? Why am I seeking after that? Why am I changing my plans for that thing? I think that worship moves us towards something else. I find that, and then sometimes we realize what that, what's happening, that we're moving our worship towards something comfort. And so we're willing to to take on these other things that we might call idols in the church as we move away from Jesus. And sometimes we recognize that. I have a friend who said he went, uh, he he was drinking a lot. And so he started going to AA and he said, I went to AA and I got my drinking under control. I realized drinking for him was a control thing. Things fell out of control when he drank. He felt like he was in control. He really wasn't, but he did. And a comfort thing. So he said, just kind of, I could escape. And so he said, the funny thing about AA, because he, he, when we hung out, he always smoked. And I said, uh, oh, you think you'll ever go to, like, Smokers Anonymous? And he said, well, I don't know if that's a thing. He said, well, everyone smokes in AA, because you've got to swap something out for the alcohol. Thought, oh, that's really interesting. He said, yeah, outside of AA, there's, like, a giant ashtray, because we all smoke, because we stopped drinking, but we needed something else. And so we, like, started smoking. It was kind of a joke that you could always sell cigarettes to guys there. I thought, oh, you just swapped it out. You're still pursuing comfort, but you've just swapped out something else for your comfort, for your idol. In fact, sometimes it's sneaky where you'll say, okay, my comfort is in Christ, it's true. And I find this in this specific battle. In my own struggle with pornography, I remember in college thinking, okay, I'm going to because I just need to escape. It makes me feel comforted. So I'm running towards comfort and I'm trying to use pornography to get me there. And then I realize, okay, this isn't okay. And so all I need to do is just get everything in order. And if I can control all of my life, everything will be okay and I will be okay. And so I just like redirected my worship to control. And so now I'm not looking at pornography, but I am like stressed out, making sure that I have everything in place so that all of my life is under control. Then everything will be okay. And then everything will, I'll feel better and and I'll be satisfied. And so unless our worship turns us back to Jesus, we're going to just keep bouncing around. It's an opportunity to consider, remember the price that was paid and the one who said, he's given us this free gift, come to me, come. I want to give you life. Those won't give you life. He says, come to me. And so the way out of this is not work harder. The way out of this is to redirect our worship to the one who's made for us to worship stop worshiping comfort or control or whatever we're worshiping. That's not Jesus and just turn our worship. My pastor, John Neal, who went through LDI with me, he was an intern with me. I remember us being in a class together and he said, oh, we just worship ourselves out of sin. Has always stuck with me because I always thought I just work hard to get out of it. And once I have it figured out, then I say, okay, Jesus, now I can worship you. I'm not sinning. That's what sin is. It's just us not worshiping him. And so We get to repent and believe. We get to turn back to God and believe. One of the ways I saw this this week, I was in Colorado for a few days and we uh, may have skipped a few of the sessions that the conference were at to drive. (laughs) The conference was in Denver, but you can see the mountains the whole time and they just beckon you, right, to come. And so um, we, uh, thankfully, someone in our group rented a Jeep. So we drove to the mountains for a few hours and drove up on top. So we were at about, almost 11,000 feet in the mountains. This isn't an actual picture. This is a Google picture of mountains, but um, we're at 11,000 feet and we take this sweet curve, right? There's a lookout so you can kind of slow down and you just think, unbelievable. Someone in our group had never seen the mountains before and he could not stop looking. He's like, I can't take my eyes off of it. Have you ever been in the mountains? It's just huge. It's enormous, it's beautiful. And we turn around a corner and there's some construction happening. on this corner of this mountaintop, which is a little startling. And there's a guy standing there, I'm not joking, taking a picture of a mound of dirt that's, that's next to the road. So he's standing, there's a little mound of dirt, and he's taking a picture of it. I don't know Why? And behind him is the greatest mound of dirt you could ever see. The most glorious, the Rocky Mountains are behind him. It makes me think instantly of the, if you've heard the C.S. Lewis quote that where people were playing in mud puddles on the beach when the the beautiful ocean is behind us. This is what sin is, is we think this is as good as it gets and behind us is an ocean. This man is taking pictures. He's, He's enjoying the view of a mound of dirt when the mountains are behind him. It's like overwhelming. We rolled down our window and we yelled out, turn around! He was like, "What?" I'm sure he was like working for the county or something, right? I'm sure he wasn't actually amazed at the amount of dirt. But I thought, "What are you doing? Right behind you is the Rocky Mountains, and you're spending your time taking pictures of a a pile of dirt. So much, right?" of our life is spent this way. We, we see something and we say, oh, this will satisfy me. How great is this mound of dirt? It's, I'm gonna spend my day planning so I get some time with my mound of dirt. And we forget that right behind us, right with us is the glorious Rocky Mountains. How did Jesus uh, deal with this? How did he handle it? Well, I actually want us to um, today not just think about it as we end our time thinking about this, I don't want us just to, to, um, to think, just to go, okay, I gotta repent, I gotta believe, I can go home and take some steps to do that, that's, that's helpful, right, that's good. I want us to like experience it. I want, this is what happens when we, read the, when we read Scripture and we experience the Spirit of God is with us, is in us, and it changes us, and we start actually believing that Christ is better. We actually start believing that Christ is good and he satisfies our soul, and he loves us, and he cares for us, that he is our comfort and our security and our power and and, and is in control. And so instead of just reading the story, I want you to just experience Jesus interacting with a woman who has been really hurt um, by others and probably hurt others herself that uh, has experienced... um, sex in different ways and sexuality in different ways. And I want you to experience how he interacts with her and the promise he gives her. And I think this this hopefully will encourage you as instead of just reading this, I want us to watch it. Now it's a little longer clip. It's like six, seven minutes. We're gonna watch this as we kind of end our time um, in this. But I want you to, I, I wanna watch this because this moves me. This changes my heart and it makes me wanna overflow and it makes my my heart change from just, an attraction to something around me but to an affection for my God and a worship for my God which then changes my behavior which is what we want. So we're going to watch this little uh, clip together. This is a clip from The Chosen as Jesus uh, interacts with the woman at the well. You guys got this back there? Thanks. That was cl- that was quick.
1: <laughs> would you give me a drink? Did you hear me?
2: That's bad, huh? What? You, a Jew? Ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan? And a woman?
1: sorry i should have said please
2: you know it's not safe for you to be alone out here
1: nor you why haven't you come with others why so late in the day don't women come to the wells in the, the cool of the morning yeah
2: well none of them will be seen with me so i have to come out now. in the heat as you have so kindly reminded me
1: why won't they be seen with you story I'd I'd still like a drink of water if you can spare it
2: amazing what a parched throat will do aren't I unclean to you won't you be defiled by this vessel
1: maybe some of my people say that about your women but I don't
2: yeah and what do you say
1: I say if you knew who I am asking me for a drink really and I would give you living water
2: would except that you have nothing to draw water with and this is a deep well besides what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water
1: long story
2: but Jewish water is better than Samaritan water
1: hmm? that's not what I said
2: are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob who dug this well your water is better than his
1: I know Jacob and everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again.
2: Wouldn't that be nice?
1: The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. First... Go and call your husband then, come back. I will show you both.
2: I don't have a husband.
1: You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband.
2: <laughs> oh, I see. You're a prophet, you're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned.
1: I'm not here to condemn you.
2: I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship.
1: They say that because the temple is there. Yeah,
2: exactly where we're not
1: allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father.
2: So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him, even if I did.
1: Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for, it won't matter where you're from or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you?
2: Until the Messiah comes and explains everything, and sorts this mess out including me I don't trust in anyone
1: you're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God this Messiah you speak of I am he the first one was named Ramin you were a woman of purity who was excited to be married but he wasn't a good man Hurt you, and it made you question marriage, and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. Stop. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges, and to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him, because he was the only truly godly man you've been with, but you felt unworthy.
2: Why are you doing
1: this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me.
2: You picked the wrong person.
1: I came to Samaria just to meet you. (laughs) Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day?
2: Rejected by others.
1: I know, but not by the Messiah.
0: (sighs) And you know these things
2: because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone.
1: I was counting on it.
2: (laughs) Spirit and truth?
1: Spirit and truth.
2: It won't be all about mountains or temples?
1: Soon, just the heart. (laughs) You promise? I promise.
2: This man told me everything I've done.
1: Oh, he must be the Christ!
0: Oh dear, you forgot your um Popsie, man, you told me everything I ever did. <laughs> um, Rabbi, we got food. What would you like?
1: Ah I have food to eat that you do not know about. Who got you
0: food? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> oh, okay teary um, that's a good clip to watch when you're feeling unwanted um, do you see what happened there I'm going to invite our worship team up we're going to take some time to worship uh, Jesus and his goodness do you see he says he, he identifies her idols he says um, there's all these men who have hurt you and some maybe you've even hurt but there's there's living water here. What an image, right? As she's drawing water from a well, thinking, again, every day I have to come draw more water. It, it never totally satisfies. I have a thirst or a hunger. This water does not. And he says, but there's, there's water that will. He says, I'm the living water. Come to me. It's not clean it up. Clean up your act. Figure this out. Stop it. The first step, if you see, even we get to watch it in, in the scene. The first step is believing, knowing, right? The head and the heart, you're the one, you're it. You will satisfy my soul. You will destroy the laws around me and the hurt around me and you will draw me in when no one else wants to. The commitment and unity and love is right there in front of her. You see what happens when it happens? Her affections move towards him Her worship moves towards him and she can't not overflow. I love that. You see, she comes and her head is down and at the end she's leaping through the the field. She can't wait to tell everyone. She says, I have to go tell everyone. The first person he goes to isn't a, a religious leader who has their act together, but a broken person, specifically very broken with their sexual history and he says, I will make you whole. It's really good news. And that's good news for us because the same God is the one who comes to us today and says, I will make you whole. Those things are just broken vessels. They're wells that will dry up. But I am the living water, friends. That's the answer to how we fight this, how we think about this, is that we're broken and Jesus will heal us and turn to him. I think a couple of things I want us to consider here. As we move, we're going to move to a time of response, which we do every week. There's a few ways we get to do that. First, just to consider a few things. Do you know that Jesus is the living water? He's the bread of life. He satisfies our appetite for all things. Maybe how can you consume the gospel this week? What does it look like to, to be able to open our Bibles and read, or to meet with people that can help you do that, or uh, pray this week? Maybe listen. Maybe watch a clip from something that helps you remember who Jesus is so that we continue to remind ourselves he is the one that our worship, uh, we are created to worship and will satisfy our souls. Do you, uh, who do you allow to fight sin beside you? Who clings to Jesus with you? This isn't a battle we do alone. Being deceived means that we aren't aware that we're being lied to. So who does that with you? I encourage you to consider that. Maybe even tell, tell that person that. I need to sometimes be told that by a friend and I need you to fight with me to know like oh yeah yeah I got to keep reminding you I have permission to remind you and how does lust affect your loving of others this could be a helpful question even that might help even motivate you to, to think oh wow my lust my behaviors in this actually are affecting others whether people I don't know they're being affected I'm just watching on a screen or maybe those actually around you are affected by by this the ways that we respond now are we're going to sing together, or our worship team's going to lead us in songs, there's people in the back of the room available to pray with you if you'd like prayer, and again, you don't even need to say anything or confess anything, you could just say, I, I just need prayer, and they would love, love to pray for you. Uh, we have the opportunity to take communion out in the hallway, and our communion is, is new this week, so if you haven't had communion in a while, I, should, I guess I shouldn't have to sell it, <laughs> but um, we have been, uh, we've been using the little cups, if you notice, that you peel away, and those of we're done with finally. And so we have new communion. It's back to the cups and uh, we've switched to gluten-free crackers so that we all together can take the same communion. And that might not sound like a big deal, but it it was kind of a big deal for me uh, that there's just a symbol of unity that together we get to to eat rice crackers uh, instead of having kind of two separate things. So today we get to take communion together. It's an opportunity to to remember what Christ has done, to believe again that Christ's body was broken, his blood was shed so you could have life, that there was a price that was paid for you. Um, And we also, an opportunity to hope to respond to the gospel is to give. There's QR codes on the communion tables, otherwise you can just go to our website and uh, give right through our website. We pray for us and we'll start, we'll just worship together here. Lord, thank you for your goodness, your kindness towards us that there is hope. That thinking about these things uh, can bring a lot of sadness and, and darkness, but we know that you're the light of the world and that you heal us, that you're living water, that you're the bread of life. I pray that we would cling to you, that we'd turn to you. The first step on changing our behavior wouldn't be to stop it, but would be to turn to you and to worship you. And that would change us. I love you, Lord. You're good to us. I praise you, worship. It would be to you. And these words and these songs would remind us of how good you are. We pray this in your great name. Amen.